Hello and welcome to episode 109 of Africa Past and Present, the podcast about African history, culture, and politics. This interview is part of a series we are doing with the African Studies Association and was recorded at their 59th annual meeting in Washington, D.C. Alan Isaacman is Regents Professor of History at the University of Minnesota and extraordinary professor at the University of the Western Cape in South Africa. He is the author of seven books, including two that won the African Studies Association's Herskovitz Award. The first was Mozambique, the Africanization of a European Institution, the Zambezi Prazos, 1750-1902, published by the University of Wisconsin Press in 1972, and Dams, Displacement, and the Delusion of Development, Caora Bassa and its Legacies in Mozambique, 1965-2007, to published by Ohio University Press in 2013. Professor Isaacman co-founded the Social History of Africa series with Heinemann and the New African Histories series with Ohio University Press in 2004. He has trained over 50 PhD students since 1970, and as an administrator, he founded the Interdisciplinary Center for the Study of Global Change at the University of Minnesota. He has won fellowships from the Guggenheim and MacArthur Foundations, among others, and as an activist, he supported the anti-colonial liberation struggle in Mozambique. Professor Isaacman received the 2013 Distinguished Africanist Award from the U.S. African Studies Association, and in 2015 was elected into the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Your latest book that I just mentioned uh, uh, with Barbara Isaacman won the Melville Herskovitz Award, given to the most important scholarly work in African studies. And in it, you range over the history of the Zambezi River Valley, uh, how Portugal and South Africa, and then the post-colonial Mozambican state, all sought to harness the river for high modernism by building this dam. Uh, And your book was justly praised by James C. Scott, at Yale as, quote, a comprehensive, historically deep and ecologically knowledgeable study that shows how whole worlds of riparian life, fish, birds, humans and other mammals dependent on the annual inundation of the floodplain have been stilled. But you also let us hear the narratives of all involved, uh, including marginalised workers, displaced peasants, uh, engineers, and you show the severe impact, the violence and environmental damage. Can you speak to the significance of of your findings and the value of this sort of research? Well, let me start by saying that Barbara Isaacman and I were attending a conference. Actually, it was a celebration for the 20th anniversary of the completion of the dam, and it was in the remote area of Songu at the dam site. And there were a number of very prominent scientists, former colonial officials, uh, this is 1996, officials from the uh, current Mozambican government, uh, the managers of the dam, and many dignitaries. And what struck us at that moment of celebration was that the people who were most adversely affected by the dam, as well as the people who built the dam, were absent. And it was that moment that realization which led us to think about writing a history of the dam 
not from the perspective of the state, whether it was the colonial state or the post-colonial state, but from the perspective of the workers who built the dam, the 40,000 peasants who were displaced by the dam because of the lake behind the dam walls, and finally, more than a million people downriver whose agricultural systems depended on seasonal flooding, which no longer existed because of the dam. So that's how we began the project. Then we realized that the environmental factors were incredibly important as well, that the dam not only affected the lived experiences of workers and peasants, but also the many different microecological zones, which is how we got, and we learned a lot, had to learn a lot about hydrology, about fauna and flora. So it became a very, very interesting multidiscipline project, which took us several years to do. And we did it with the assistance and participation of a number of Mozambican scholars, including Arlindu Chilundu and a number of students from the University of Eduardo Milan. The oral uh, dimension must have been crucial here. Yes, this was absolutely crucial because using written sources, you would get the state narrative. And the state narrative, as you suggested, Peter, is about high modernism, about the desire and ability and belief that the Portuguese could control the river. And they had a, this has been a long dream of the Portuguese going back to the 17th or 18th century to dominate the river and to dominate the biosphere. But what they actually did do was disrupt the river and disrupt the biosphere, because if you think about it, a river is a dynamic, moving phenomenon. A lake, the lake behind the river, uh, is, is essentially partial and largely dead. It's not, it's not moving. So it, crea- it destroys the ecosystem in the, uh, in the lake area, and the, the health of the river downstream from the dam depends on how much water uh, goes through the turbines, which in turn depends on energy needs. And these energy needs were not for Mozambique, but originally to maintain the, uh, and support electricity for the apartheid farms and apartheid uh, industry. How did you squeeze the oral testimony out in this case? Because you mentioned the peasants were dispersed. How did you track them and talk to them? And well, we interviewed about 300 people, uh, 300 peasants, and we learned where they had been relocated. And some were relocated about 40 or 50 miles from the river. And we went there. to the, what, They were relocated in what the Portuguese called Aldiamentos, which were like the equivalent of forced villages in the Vietnam War, because this was also the time of the armed struggle, and the Portuguese colonial government wanted to separate peasants from uh, the Frelimo and the liberation movement. So they were moved into enclosed barbed wire areas and only allowed to move out for about four or five hours to produce the minimum amount of food they needed to survive. We identified where those sites were because once the Aldiamentos were abandoned, people had no place to go uh, because their historic homelands, which were very richly flooded areas uh, along the river's edge, had now all been flooded permanently by the lake. Mm. So we knew where, approximately where they lived, and we spent months talking to them, and then we moved downriver to talk to those people 
who his livelihoods were destroyed by the uh, the dam. And let me just explain why and how why this is so significant, because this is an area that's is a very low rainfall area, and people and peasants who farmed along the margins of the river depended on the seasonal flooding. And the seasonal flooding left very rich alluvial deposits, which enabled peasants to do have two seasons a year in what otherwise was a very dry area. Once the dam was built, then the seasonal rain uh, flooding patterns ended, and water dispersed through the turbines in relationship to the needs of South Africa. And so the whole agroecological system was destroyed, and people who tried to farm on the edges of the rivers never knew when water would pass. And sometimes it would be in the rainy season, but most often it wasn't. And as a result, their crops along the river's edge were destroyed. Moreover, the river was not the same river because it no longer carried the rich sediments. Uh, which made this such fertile land, and that was very significant not only for farming, but these sediments and nutrients were important for the ecosystem. Putting sources such as oral history interviews online today is of growing importance, Mm -hmm. and uh, you were trained at Wisconsin where Jan Van Sina did so much to position oral history center stage in African historiography, but now we seem to be in a new phase. And this putting of sources online, you were involved uh, and, and still are involved perhaps with the Aluka project, uh, digitizing all sorts of sources related to the liberation struggles mm-hmm. in southern Africa. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your role in the Aluka project and your thoughts for going forward in this mode, including Mozambique. So uh, the Aluka project was funded through Ithaca, which was funded through the Mellon Foundation. And it was an effort to see if you could create uh, these new types of digital archives and other types of archives and make them available. Uh, And so There were three major projects, one of which was the Struggles for Liberation in Southern Africa, and that was the one that I was involved with, and I was the coordinator and the director, uh, along with a person from Ithaca, Tom Nigren, and what we had was uh, national committees made up of scholars from Botswana, from Mozambique, from Zimbabwe, from South Africa, and they identified sources to digitize and oral sources as well. And we we have put online about 300,000 pages of documents. Including, I think, some oral history uh, from Mozambique. From Mozambique that I collected, and there was a, uh, Gail Gephardt has a wonderful interview or several interviews with Steve Biko. Uh, there are some very, very valuable oral histories that uh, we hope young scholars will uh, use. And your, your role as editor is how I first encountered mm-hmm. your work, in fact, in the Social History of Africa series that used to be published by Heinemann and then in its current form is 
called the New African Histories at Ohio University Press in its latest iteration. Um, and in a way, you know, digitization of sources and, and publishing online is still publishing. And so can you tell us a little bit about your role as series editor in Africanist publishing and maybe talk about how it's changed over time um, yeah, for well, the audience? So I'm the co-editor with Gene Allman, who is the head of the Humanities Center at Washington University, and Derek Peterson, uh, who is one of my former students, who is at uh, University of Michigan. And this project builds on, extends, but also diverges from the uh, social history project because uh, we wanted to try to create a space uh, to move the field in new directions. We had published almost 100 books in the African Social History series, and uh, this series, which is now with the ter terrific assistance and direction of, of Jillian Berkowitz, mm. who's the director of Ohio U uh, University Press, our goal here is twofold, to identify new areas of scholarly research, to try to push the frontiers, but also create spaces for young scholars, particularly scholars from uh, the continent, to publish as, as well. And so a lot of our books are first books, and we really look forward to publishing uh, really new and innovative, innovative work. And it's these younger scholars who are going to uh, change the direction and open up new areas of, of inquiry. Talk to us a little about uh, doing Mozambican history over the years. I mean, uh, your recent uh, award winner was not the first. You, your earlier book back in 1973 also won a It's a great honor. And so you've been doing Mozambican history for a long time. Mm -hmm. How did it start and what were some of the highlights and challenges? Well, so I was uh, first went to Mozambique in 1968 with my uh, wife, Barber, we uh, went to look at the question of, of how Portuguese settlers became Africanized. And this was a study of the Prazos. But the really interesting issue was uh, the challenges that we faced because we were followed by the secret police, <laughs> which meant they, the Portuguese actually allowed us in because they thought and believed that we were, when we were collecting oral histories, we were studying myths and legends. So it had no real value. So they allow <laughs> us, and they wanted to show us how this was a great multiracial society. Uh, we went and collected oral histories, and only, and one sympathetic administrator told us that we were being followed by the secret police. So we did interviews on the 18th and 19th century. Once that the interviews ended, we closed down our tape recorders because people wanted to talk about the contemporary situation. And we were very uh, worried about what might happen to the tapes. We made three copies of our tapes, one of which the Portuguese, act, we, one of which the Portuguese got access to because we found transcriptions in the old colonial archives. We kept one with us all the time and sent another home. So it was a very challenging time to, to do field work and to, ex how to explain to local populations 
that we had come this long distance because we really valued their history. And the purpose of collecting the history was also to create an archives for, so future generations would uh, know their history. And the uh, one set of our interview, uh, interviews are located in Indiana. I uh, when we came back, we uh, were very strong critics of Portuguese colonialism. And we, we began to work and s with and support for Limo in the uh, struggle for independence. And I just met a colleague who found in an article, a letter that I wrote in 1972 in which to then President Samora Michel, uh, this colleague is Erica Lina, and he was working in the archives, and he found the letter that I sent to President Michel with the $500 Herskovitz Award, saying that this was, from, this was from me as a statement of my solidarity with the Mozambican people. So I'm looking forward to get a copy of that letter. <laughs> and fast forward very briefly, doing Mozambican history today, a different set of challenges? Oh, yes. So we're, our book on the dams is coming out in Portuguese ah, right now. We're going in yes. January. Mm. And there's been a lot of uh, criticism in public, in, among public officials, uh, high state officials, some of whom were acquaintances and friends of ours mm. because their position is that uh, the dam is doing a lot of really positive things in generating income, which it does. It generates about $300 million, but none of that money, our position is that that money should be used for development projects in the Zambezi Valley, in the area that's affected by the dams. And also, it raises questions about building a second dam but subsequent dams in the Zambezi Valley, and we think that's a, a mistake that there are other ways of acquiring energy using smaller dams, hydro, uh, solar panels, and uh, wind, etc. So there's a lot of, there are people in Mozambique who said, well, you know, the, your, block, your criticism means that you don't appreciate our need for development, and our argument is that what, we, what Mozambique needs is really sustainable development, and the question around development always is development for who? Who benefits and who loses? Well, maybe we can start to bring the conversation to a close by talking about the African Studies Association, mm -hmm. which you've been past president of, and also the ASA Awards, the Herskowitz Award. And you served in a variety of capacities the organization. So what are your thoughts on African Studies today and the ASA going forward? Well, I think it's very vibrant. We went through some very difficult periods, but the association now is in very good shape, very strong leadership. We have a wonderful executive director, mm. wonderful younger board members, uh, and people who assume the position, positions of leadership. The ASA is really diversifying in terms of the types of things it's doing and trying to reach out to African and African scholars in many, many ways. And in some ways, the best mark of the vibrancy of the ASA is all the younger people who have become part of the association and are very active in the field. And that's demonstrated their significance by the fact that last year's Herskovitz winners and finalists included three people who have first who written, had written their first book, 
And I think two or three of the finalists this year are also first-time scholars. So we really have a wonderful association. And for me, it's a place to meet old friends going back uh, 50 years, meeting students, seeing people from the, co uh, from the continent. So it's just a wonderful opportunity and a wonderful association. Well, and I'm sure that this, our interview today will contribute just like to the streams that flow into the Zambezi River, into this uh, increasing uh, river of the ASA and through its new, exciting new directions. Uh, Alan Isaacman, thanks very much for talking to ASA Podcasts and Africa Past and Present. Great. Africa Past and Present is a co-production of Matrix, the Center for Digital Humanities and Social Sciences, and the Department of History at Michigan State University. Technical assistance is provided by the Matrix Digital Media Lab. For more information and to subscribe to the podcast, visit our website at afropod.aodl.org. The podcast is also available on iTunes. You can also send us email at africa.podcast.com at matrix.msu.edu. Thanks for listening. <laughs>